Welcome to the Beeson Podcast, coming to you from Beeson Divinity School on the campus of Samford University in Birmingham, Alabama. Now your host, Timothy George. Welcome to today's Beeson Podcast. Today I have the great privilege of speaking with the Reverend Anthony B. Thompson. He is the vicar of Holy Trinity Reformed Episcopal Church in Charleston, South Carolina, a third-generation minister in the Reformed Episcopal Church. He's here to preach at Beeson Divinity School, and we're having this conversation around his visit. So welcome so much to our school and to this podcast. Well, thank you so very much, Dr. Joyce, for having me this morning. It's a blessing and an honor to be here at Beeson's Divinity School, and I'm very excited to, uh, to share the gospel of forgiveness with all those who are willing to hear. We want to talk a little bit about your life, and in particular, a special event that happened to you several um, years ago. Uh, but first of all, tell us, what is the Reformed Episcopal Church? Well, the Reformed Episcopal Church is, um, came out of the Episcopal Church in the 1700s. Uh, Dave, bishop David Cummings was a bishop in the Episcopal Church, and of course, uh, he served with the Presbyterian Church during a communion week, and the Episcopal Church got very upset. Ah. And so he decided from that point, and because of a lot of other things going on in the Episcopal Church at that time, to leave the Episcopal Church and, be, and start the Reform Episcopal Church, which is very much more Episcopal than Episcopal is. <laughs> <laughs> and so the, the word Reformed would indicate that you have a connection to Reformed theology or the Reformation in some way? Well, in some way, uh, yes, we have. You know, It's still mostly related to, be, to the Episcopal Church as a whole, and the, the joke is that we place reform so that people would know there's a difference, but we still pretty much follow the God, the, the order of service. and Book of Common Prayer? Yes, the Book of Common Prayer. Wonderful. And Cummings, you have a seminary, Cummings Theological Seminary, named for this person who yes. was at the origin of your church. Yes. So. Now, uh, I want to take you to an event that happened in Charleston, where you're now living, uh, be, because it was it's an event that is so well-known around the world, one of the great tragic events in recent American history. Will you tell us what happened that day? Well, on June 17th of 2015, a young man by the name of Dylan Roof uh, went to Bible study at Emmanuel Amy Church in Charleston, South Carolina, and decided that he, you know, hated, well, he hated black people. Mm. And uh, he had a, he, he, he said that we were doing things to white Americans that, you know, in his eyes, you know, were not good. And I'm, I don't want to get too much into what he said, but however, he took it upon himself while in Bible study to kill nine people, of which my wife, Myra, was one of, one of them. She was teaching Bible study that night. Um, she was teaching uh, the, the parable of the sowing the seed. Hmm. Um, he had been there at a previous Bible study, and so when he came to this Bible study, it was not strange for him to be there, and everyone just... Just hugged him and loved him and, 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 and did as much as they could for him. And, but for somehow, he st still had this hate in his heart. And, 
I want to come back to this event, but tell us a little bit about your wife. Her name was Myra, Mm -hmm. and she herself was a minister in the AME, African Methodist Episcopal Church, right? Yes, she was a minister. As a matter of fact, she had just become a minister in the African, uh, in the um, AME Church. She, mm, okay, she was a very extraordinary person. You know, she, she, she loved the Lord. Mm. When when she decided to pursue the ministry, she was at my church. I had it. I was at a church in Saint in Somerville, South Carolina, uh, named Saint Stephen's Reformed Episcopal Church, and she had this vision of uh, looking at the pulpit, and she saw herself at the pulpit. Of course, she didn't want to tell anyone at that time because she thought maybe, perhaps, we would think. Uh, she just imagined this, or she didn't know how anyone would take it. But after about a year or so, she explained it to me, and she asked me, how do you know when God calls you? So I explained to her how it happened to me, and from that day forward, uh, which was in 2013, she um, went forward and pursued the ministry in the AME Church. So you had a, a, a family, a household, with two ministers of different denominations. How did that work out? Well, we always had a mutual understanding, you know, even before we actually married, me being a Reformed Episcopalian and her being an African Methodist Episcopal Episcopalian, that we were not going to struggle with which church we're going to be, what denomination we're going to belong to. Um, in my ministry, she was behind me 100%. Mm-hmm. Uh, she spent a lot of time in the Reformed Episcopal Church. She got really involved, and she spent just maybe a, f- a few hours, maybe a few days during, during the month at her own church. She really did not get fully engaged into uh, Emmanuel Church again until she pursued the ministry. Yeah. And when she pursued the ministry, uh, her, her pastor, her former pastor, which was Reverend Clemente Pinckney, who was one of the nine who was killed, uh, he and I met, and we discussed it So, because I wanted him to understand that I was okay with her being a minister in the, sure. in the denomination. Yeah. So there was never a problem. And so she was teaching the Bible at uh, Mother Emanuel yes. AME Church in Charleston, one of the great historic churches, right, of your city. Yes, it is. And uh, she saw this young man come in. She invited him to come forward and to be seated and to hear and participate mm-hmm. with others in a very open act of Christian hospitality and generosity. Mm-hmm. Now, um, why was she speaking on that particular parable? Well, it was a challenge for her. Uh, she came across it when I was preaching one time. I just, I was not preaching on that particular uh, parable. I just included it in a part of my sermon. And for some reason, it aroused her curiosity, and she started reading more of it. She didn't quite understand it because she would never read the entire uh, chapter. She would just go as far as the parable, and then she would ask me, well, what does it mean? (laughs) And I would tell her, keep reading, keep reading. And so she was, you know, she kept reading, but she kept reading the same thing. And so the joke was, uh, one day I I told her, I said, well, you just have to go back and keep reading. And I heard her screaming one day upstairs. She came running down the steps screaming, oh, I got it, I got it, I got it, I got it. I was like, well, okay, what did you do? She said, you should have told me not just keep reading, but to read the whole chapter. (laughs) (laughs) And so she was very excited, you know, about what it said to her. 
because she was just making some changes in her life and pursuing the ministry. And and seeing me as a minister, she could never understand why I did some of the things I did and and why she would call it tolerate people the way I did. Yeah. And and so this was a change for her, you know, yeah. and this is one reason why she chose that particular scripture. And there was there was a need in her church, she thought, mm-hmm. for that particular scripture. Yeah. There were some things going on, yes. Of course, you were not present when this uh, horrible, tragic event took place. How did you hear about it? I was at my church. As a matter of fact, I wanted to be there with her because normally when she speaks or I speak or we get engaged in any activity or your organization, we go with each other. But she was very adamant about me not being there that night. Uh, she had a way of influencing me to do what she wanted me to do. <laughs> <laughs> and she said, well, you need to go to your church because um, there's going to be problems there f- for our first night of our vacation Bible study. And so I, I went there, left my church, and went home. And usually she'll get home before me when she's in Bible study. So I wasn't sure what was going on. And then I received a phone call from a member of Emmanuel. And she asked for Myra. I said, Myra's not here. And she, well, she should be there because we're in a meeting together and, and I'm home. She should be home. And I reminded her that Myra had to teach Bible study that night. And while we were talking, she, someone called her. And she, she had me to hold on. And when she came back to the line, she said, uh, Reverend Thompson, you need to go to the church. And I said, well, I just left my church. She said, no, you need to go to Emmanuel. And I was like, Why? She said, well, I heard there was some shooting, and before she could finish anything, I dropped the phone, and I ran, mm. not even locking my door, mm. not even really understanding what was going on, and that's how I found out you know, what was going on at Emmanuel. So you arrived at the church in the scene of this horrible tragedy. Yeah, I arrived at the church, and of course the streets were blocked off, and I was trying to explain to the officer that you know, my wife was in that church and I needed to get in there. But he assured me that everybody was okay. He said they took the members from the church and they took them across the street to the hotel, which was adjacent to the church. So I thought it was everything was fine until I got to a street called Meeting Street and I saw nine ambulances and the lights were not on. They were parked. And I just knew something, something must have happened. So I ran to the hotel where um, the officer said the members were um, placed and I couldn't find her. And then I went to a room that I was directed where the members are supposed to be. Everybody was saying that everybody was inside the hotel. And, and I opened the door and I saw Polly Shepard, who was one of the survivors. And I saw Felicia Sanders, who was another survivor, and her granddaughter. And I didn't see anybody else. And Felicia Sanders looked up to me and she said, she said, Anthony, my is gone. That was very devastating, um, mm. but I still didn't believe it, of course. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and um, actually, I ran outside, and I, I just kind of wallowed for a while in, in the morning. And, and then, for some reason, I had to get to the church, so I, I ran towards the church. And I got by all the sled agents, FBI agents. I don't know how it happened, but I got through the the blockade they had up, and I was almost to the door of the church, and as I reached to open the door, somebody grabbed me. And it was an FBI agent, asked me to identify myself, and I was struggling with him. We pretty much were fighting. 
because mm-hmm. I wanted to get into that church. Mm-hmm. And after I identified myself to him, he explained to me that I didn't. He said, no, you don't want to go in there. Mm-hmm. Um, and I asked him, I said, well, you know, I asked him what was going on. If everybody was okay, hadn't heard anything, and it was nothing he could really tell me. Every time I asked him a question, he said, I can't tell you. Mm-hmm. Um, it was very frustrating. And so I struggled some more to try to get in there. They had to get three more officers to come hold me back because mm-hmm. I really just... Anyway, eventually I ended up just losing control, mm-hmm. which I never had in my life before. I never lost control. Sure. I was, yeah. And um, I just... I just Fell out in the street, and I wallowed in the street, and I just cried myself until somebody picked me up. And uh, it was one of the first responders. His name was Spike. And um, all I can remember saying is that I don't know what to do. Mm. Mm. So you're in the midst of this uh, life uh catastrophe, mm-hmm. so unspeakably evil, it's hard even to imagine it, and much less to experience it as you had to go through. Now, you're a minister of the gospel. Yes. And um, talk about what you as a Christian and as a minister of the Word of God, uh, how you responded in those days. It must have taken you a while to let it sink in. And then to did you wonder, how did God let this happen? <clears throat> Well, I never really questioned God. I had a very strong faith, you know, from a child. I was raised by Christian parents, and and uh, I was just very close to him. So I never really blamed him. I never asked him why. I never even really thought, gave second thought about who did it. Because, you know, my mind was completely on, on my and what happened mm-hmm. to her. Did she suffer? You know, did she need me to be there? So those things, never, anything negative never came to my mind. But what did come to my mind was I remember God saying, now, Anthony, all those sermons you preach to your people about, you know, who they value the most. Do they value me or do they value their loved ones or do they value their possessions? And that's the first thing that came to my mind. And he said, now you have to live that. Mm. Now, a remarkable thing happened. Um, uh, Reverend Thompson, I wish you would talk about it. When you actually were able to offer forgiveness to this young man who had done the most unspeakably evil thing Mm -hmm. uh, to a person so dear and precious to you, your own wife, tell us how that happened. It seems almost unbelievable that it could happen even to a person so deeply rooted in the church and in the faith and the scriptures as you are. Mm-hmm. But God led you to that position, right, where oh, you yes. were able to offer forgiveness to Dylan Roof. Yes, I was led by God because I did not want to be present at the bond hearing. You know, I, I was retired probation agent for adults. I've been to, I took people to several bond hearings, and I knew they would, he would come out receive a, a bond, and they take him back to his cell. So I didn't see any significance in going to a bond hearing. However, my daughter and my son, my daughter Denise and my son Kevin, they kept saying they wanted to go, and my daughter said, well, I'm not going unless you go, and that's what got me there. And on our way there, I was very adamant 
about them not saying anything to anyone. I said, we're going to sit down. When we get through the barn here, we're getting up, we're leaving. When I got there, I can remember looking at my watch, and all of a sudden this voice came, a voice that I'm very familiar with. I heard this voice when I was seven years old. I heard this voice again in 2010, God saying, I have something to say. Mm. And I got up immediately. And I was walking toward the podium, and I'm like, okay, God, you better come on because I don't have anything to say. <laughs> you said you have something to say. What is it? And I still didn't have any anger in my heart for this young man. But God said, I forgive you. My family forgive you. You know, you need to repent. You need to confess and give your life to the one who your life means the most to, and that's Christ. I said, if you, and if you do, I said, you're in a lot of trouble right now, but if you do that, you know, he could help you change your ways and change your attitudes. I said, no matter what happens to you, you're going to be all right. Mm. And that's all he had me to say. You know, I, I just, I, I pretty much saw Dylan, you know, God was really working my heart because I saw him as I saw myself, as a sinner. And that made a big difference. Mm. And I said, if God could forgive me, you know, then I can forgive him. You know, there was an article about you, a feature story, really, in Time magazine. You were pictured on the front cover of Time. And there were a series of questions that were asked in that article, uh, including these. Can murder be forgiven? And if so, who has the power? Must it be earned or given freely? Mm-hmm. Who benefits from forgiveness, the sinner or the survivor? And why do we forgive at all? Is it a way of remembering or of forgetting? Mm-hmm. Well, some of our listeners will not have read that article, but I wonder if you would tell us how you would answer some of those questions. In a situation like this, mm-hmm. what does forgiveness mean and what does it not mean? Well, murder can be forgiven. I'm not saying it's very easy for someone to forgive to actually forgive another person who murdered, you know, their loved ones. Uh, I'm not saying it's, it's easy to do, but it, murder can't be forgiven because murder is just is a sin, just like any other sin. That's the way I look at it. There's no greater sin. There's no lesser sin. You know, sin is a sin. And so, yes, murder can be forgiven. For others, it may be a little harder it depends, and it all depends on, I guess, where their relationship is with the Lord. And, you know, because that basically, you know, is going to be the, the, the turning point in your life to be able to do that, depending on where you are with Him. And, you, know, you were brought up in a Christian family, and you were mm-hmm. taught this principle. Oh, yeah. uh, Jesus on the cross, forgive them for they know not what they mm-hmm. do. This was ingrained into you almost, I think, as a as a little child mm-hmm. growing up in a Christian family. Mm-hmm. I saw my parents do it. I saw them do it all the time. You know, it wasn't something that they actually told me or something they showed me. And um, and and in my growing up, I, it was strange because some sometimes I was like, why, you know, why. <laughs> mm. You know, I wouldn't do it if I was them, but of course it was ingrained into mm-hmm. me. Let me ask you a slightly different question, uh, related though, and that is, 
you are able, it seems almost supernaturally, to forgive this uh, person mm-hmm. that many people would think of as a monster mm-hmm. who had done the most unspeakable evil uh, to the person dearest to you in life. You were able to extend forgiveness in Jesus' name to him. <laughs> what about anger? You know, we speak sometimes of holy indignation. Mm-hmm. How do you handle anger in this event? Well, first of all, it's hard to make me angry. <laughs> I'm a very patient person. And so I think that had a lot to do with uh, the situation with, with Dylan. And, you know, I never really focused on what he did and, and the fact that he did it. You know, my focus was really not on him. My focus was pretty much on my wife. Mm. And, and she, you know, she occupied most of my mind during that time. So I really didn't feel any anger towards him. Would she have wanted you to do what you were able to do? Oh, yeah. Without, mm-hmm. a, yeah, without a shadow of a doubt. Yeah. Yeah. You know, that's the kind of person she was. Um, but I remember getting angry at one time, but it wasn't, I wasn't angry at Dylan. You know, um, I was angry because God put me on another mission and, and during the course of what had just happened, and I couldn't understand. You know, at the barn here, and he told me he, he wanted, you know, I had a new mission, and that was to spread the gospel of forgiveness. It didn't completely sink in until a few days, you know, I was home by myself, and I was like, Why? Why would you want me to do this at a time like this? And how can I? There's no way possible. So I got a little angry at him and frustrated. I can remember screaming at him. I can remember falling down on the ground just like, I'm not going to do it. And of course, like David, later on I came to my senses and I asked him to forgive me. But that was the only time I can remember being angry. Hmm. But my anger was never focused on Dylan. Dylan, I don't know. I, God somehow soothed my spirit and somehow prepared me for this before it actually happened. Mm-hmm. You know, um, it was it was a lot of things that I went through in my life. You know, um, being and working with the state as a as an agent, that I had to just you know forgive people for you know maybe not verbally but just you know not paying attention to how they treated me or. Mm-hmm you know, what they were trying to do to me. And, and then preaching forgiveness so many times on the pulpit. I mean, I can give you, I, I probably got about 40 or 50 sermons just on forgiving, forgiveness that I preached prior to this. Mm. And all these things running through my mind, you know, God just bringing all these things to remembrance about, you know, what I told my people, what I told my congregation. And so I think that buffeted the anger. You know, because I never, even to this day, I'm not angry with him. I sat in court, and I actually saw him not showing any remorse, not even looking us in the face, and telling us if he had the opportunity, he would do it again. And, and you know, I tried to get angry, but I couldn't. I just mm. couldn't. I just couldn't. I just, God's Spirit just wouldn't let me do it. I mean, I have no, I have no, no regrets, you know about not being angry with him, and it's just something about God's Spirit. It just won't let me do it. 
Now, I want to take a, just a second to move from that event in your life and your response to it and to, to ask you to comment a little bit on the wider issue mm. of racial tension, racial injustice in our mm-hmm. country. Uh, it's been with us a long time, of course, but it seems right now to have reached a kind of fever pitch in a lot of communities. Yeah. Now, we're making this conversation here in Birmingham, Alabama. It's a city with a history, mm-hmm. city with scars. Yes. Uh, and in, in need of reconciliation. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure the same would be true of Charleston, South Carolina, and any city we could think of in our country. Talk a little bit about racism and a Christian engagement with it. Well, racism definitely is prevalent. And like you said, it's in every city. Of course, I've experienced it in Charleston. Now, it, it, it was a long time in my life before I actually experienced racism because I'm a military brat. <laughs> and so we were around every kind of cu- culture, every race, and never once did I, as a child, experience that until I got older and something happened. You know, um, but right now in the city of Charleston, being that it was the first state to secede from the Union because of slavery, mm-hmm. and being the kind of people where well, we were very hospitable people, but there's an undertone of racism that we never discussed or talked about until this tragedy. And since this tragedy, the city of Charleston has really come together. Right now, along with the, the, the mayor's office, Mayor Tecklenburg, uh, we have what we call an advisory council of ministers, and we're focusing on reconciliation in the entire city of Charleston and, and hope it will spread through the state of South Carolina. And more people are speaking now about racism mm-hmm. in Charleston. I spoke at a church, Trinity Church, which was once an Episcopal church in the predominantly white aristocratic congregation. And I had one lady, after I got to speaking, to tell me she was a middle-aged white lady, and she told, and she just got up and, and gave her testimony about how she was taught racism, how she was taught to hate black people, you know, and went down through her family. And when she became older, she understood better, she knew better, but she didn't do better because the pressure from status and, and other people, her friends. And when she heard about this forgiveness concerning Dylan Roof that I, me and the other, some of the other family members um, expressed, she said she repented of racism, mm. and she said that she, and she had her kids with her. She said she wanted them to understand that. Mm. And so it's something that we're tackling now, you know, because it's there. It's, 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 it means everywhere, and we have to tackle from a Christian point of view. We can't we can't make make people think different, you know. We have to do it by example, mm. you know. We you know what, what we're doing now. We, we're getting into our our pulpits. And we're we're preaching, you know, about racism. Not coming out saying racism, but we're from from the scripture, you know, in reference to love and hate, you know, in reference to. Um, as a matter of fact, we just had a um, this Lent season. St. Michael's Church was predominantly white. Uh, St. John Lutheran Church predominantly white. First God's Presbyterian Church predominantly white, and First Baptist Church, of course, you know, is the first Baptist church in the United States of America. In my church, we're, we have been meeting and preaching from each other's pulpit and um, focus 
this last season was confronting evil, mm-hmm. and it was concerning racism, discrimination, and we all preached that on each other's pulpit concerning that. And so we're trying to tackle from a Christian point of view, from Scripture. We're not trying to force it on anybody or try to offend anyone. We're just trying to make people realize that, you know, it's time to heal. Mm. You know, it's time to come together. Mm. And the only way to do that is we're going to have to forgive each other. Mm-hmm. That's where the healing begins, mm-hmm. you know, um, because it's on both sides, yeah. black and white. Yeah. You know, blacks feel the same way. You know, the whites feel the same way when it comes to, you know, some of us may hate whites and some whites may hate blacks. I mean, it's on both sides of the fence. And so um, it's something that we have to do from the pulpit. And then we have to engage ourselves into the community, not the community that surrounds your church, but the, the, the entire community. You know, and, and one way to tackle that problem is to for the pastors to come together and, and go to each other's community. And it's something that we're doing in Charleston, too. You know, before the lunch season actually starts, you know, we'll meet and we'll go down Broad Street to the lawyer's office, to all the businesses, black and white pastors, and, and we go and witness to people, you know, and then we'll go in the inner city and do the same thing. And so this is how we're trying to confront that, that challenge. Dr. John Leith uh, was a great Presbyterian theologian, a mm-hmm. friend of mine, and he wrote a book with an interesting subtitle, What the Church Can Say That No One Else Can Say. Mm-hmm. And I think I'm hearing you say something that's distinctive about the mission of the church. We haven't done it very well mm-hmm. often. We don't live it very well. Mm-hmm. But we're called to that, it seems to me, uh, by the gospel itself. And you're a wonderful example of how that uh, can actually be realized in action there in Charleston. So thank you so much for being with us yes. today and sharing out of your heart uh, uh, this great uh, tragedy in your life that you have not run away from, mm-hmm. but uh, that you continue to talk about and to reflect on and to move out into the world in the name of Christ from And it's an inspiration to hear you talk. And thank you so much for being here today. Well, thank you for having me. You've been listening to the Beeson Podcast with host Timothy George. You can subscribe to the Beeson Podcast at our website, BeesonDivinity.com. Beeson Divinity School is an interdenominational evangelical divinity school training men and women in the service of Jesus Christ. We pray that this podcast will aid and encourage your work, and we hope you will listen to each upcoming edition of the Beeson Podcast.